It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the end of July. Hope all is well. It's the podcast. You know the drill. We're trying to make economics that little bit more comprehensible, more sensible, more germane to our lives. We're trying to make sense of the world. Hope your week has been good. I've had an interesting one. What about you, Head? I've been very good. I've had a good old week. Good old domestic week, actually. A domestic week, domestic we domesticated. Week. Lots of gardening and lots of uh, laundry. That's what I do these days. This is, and how's the man shed? It's like a little it, refuge for you. It is, yeah, yeah. And it's becoming more so, it has proven its worth during COVID, let me Abs- tell you. Absolutely. You know. I'm, not, I'm not only saying that, my wife is saying that too. <laughs> my kids are saying that, everyone around. But you know where I was? I was in La Hinch this week. A La Hinch. I was Love down visiting our, our mate, Peter Bannon who bought an old pub called Tom Frawley's, just as you come into the town, right? Oh, yeah. Now, the interesting thing about Tom Frawley's, for me, is that I have a photo of me and Shan in Frawley's pub, okay, on the 2nd of January, 1995. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. With Tom Frawley serving. And when Bannum said to me, I'm buying this old pub in the Hinch, I thought, the Hinch, have I been there? Oh, yeah, I have, somewhere in the back of my head. He goes, yeah, it's this one called Frawley's. And then I said to Shanna, she produced a photo, a grainy photo of us. That wasn't the, the time of, because I, I remember. We went down whole, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, that's what I was going to say. 1994. Yeah, a that was a proper wild night, weekend. A proper, proper yeah. night. I just remember mental carry on. Yeah, I remember So that's, that. we were down there in La Hinch. Wonderful time. Lots and lots of people, like hundreds, maybe thousands of people on the beach. Oh, really? Lots and lots of kids. Hanging out on the big rocks, these big rocks that they yeah, built, these yeah, sort yeah. of loads fortifications, of going on. lots of surfing. It was great. I, and it was, you'll love this. I stayed in a, in, in a small hotel called Vaughn's. I got up the next day having breakfast. And I think the, the wife of the owner, I think her name is Geraldine, comes down. She said, uh, Hi, hi, David. I said, Hi, how are you? <laughs> and she says, uh, In the kitchen is my nephew, Nilo Sullivan. He's a massive fan of the podcast. Oh, good man, Niall. Niall, shout out to Niall, studying economics in Holland. Oh, right. Because lots of Irish kids are studying in Holland because they don't do, they don't do the point system thing. The Dutch universities are yeah. good. The Dutch universities are free. And the Dutch education is fantastic. So there's a lot of Irish kids. Yeah. Uh, and speaking, uh, speaking of doing exams and kids, big shout out to Ushin O'Mara. 
He won't know why. Well, you know, Mara, apparently doing your law exams, very soon your final, I think they're called F1, maybe even F111s. Is that... Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have a clue. Doing Come the on, F1, so Oshin, keep the nose to the grind for yeah. a few weeks. We're you, with you, man. We're we, with we, you. You'll be grand. But anyway, Lola Hinch was funny. And I was, John, I was looking out. I went for a walk towards the scanner and I was looking out at the Atlantic and the amazing Lola Hinch, huge, huge beach. And it's funny when you're, in the West of Ireland, right? Mm. I don't know about you, but I get a real sense of Irish history much more deeply than I do when I'm in the East of Ireland. Okay. So you see these abandoned villages, you see these... Yeah, open, yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly, today is the anniversary, 28th of July, okay. as we publish, of the 1848 Young Ireland Rebellion. And oh. Clare, of course, was part of the whole thing. Tell us about was, that. Well, it was called the Famine Rebellion. It was a rebellion that happened after the famine. So you imagine the trauma in a county like Clare. Clare and Mayo, Galway and Kerry and Cork lost huge percentages of their population in the famine. Yeah. In fact, so much so that the famine has been called the great devastation of the Irish language because they were mainly Irish speakers who died. Yeah, of course, yeah. From all the, the, the Gael yeah, talks, yeah, So yeah, from yeah, Donegal, yeah. it was the west of yeah. Ireland, the, right? And yeah, I get that sense. That maybe it's just me, but when I'm, in, when I'm looking at the Atlantic and it's crashing in at Doolin, you know, down around the cliffs of Moher, down, I don't think of the majestic nature. I think of the people who had to leave. I've always felt that. I know exactly what you mean. You spend a lot of time down in Roundstone, as do I. And the last time I was down there, Myself, Joe and Al went out to Lacken Island. We kayaked out to Lacken. Lacken is just a half a mile off the coast. And it's a small, barren island, but it's full of derelict houses. People were living there for hundreds of years. Thousands of years. Maybe thousands but of years. there's nothing there, you know? Well, this is the interesting, what, what, what is fascinating. So I, I have this kind of, it's like I have a haunted feeling when I'm in those places. And mm. there's a bog road in Roundstone up the back of O'Dowd's. I'm actually I going to Roundstone yeah. next week so we can do a podcast from Roundstone. Oh, great. But, yeah. you know, and you do get this it's a slightly haunting feeling of what actually happened. But 1848 rebellion, the fascinating thing is that all the Irish rebellions happened in the context of other rebellions. They didn't happen on their own. This idea that Irish nationalism or the Irish national card was played exclusively by ourselves. So 1848 was a year of rebellion all over Europe. Mm. Massive one in France, for example, okay, in Germany, all these incipient rebellions, right? 1916, again, it's part of a rebellious period. It's followed by 1917, the Russian rebellion, Russian right? Yeah. 1798 comes hot on the heels of the American Revolution, the French Revolution. These are all part of the narrative. Now, Irish history has been embedded in deeper European history for many, many years. And, you know, sometimes you get a sense that these years are, are tipping points. And I'm going to read from oh. a document written in 1848, okay, <laughs> okay, called The Manifesto of the Communist Party. The Communist <laughs> Manifesto, right. which I was reading the other day, because I believe we are at a tipping point. Sometimes okay. you have that feeling. So this is the first paragraph okay. of the Communist Manifesto. A spectre is haunting Europe the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered 
into a holy alliance to exorcise this specter, the Pope, the Tsar, Metternich, Guznots, French radicals, German police spies. Where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? Where the opposition that has not hurled back the branding reproach of communism against the most advanced opposition as well as against the reactionary adversaries? He goes on. Now, the reason I'm interested in this is that... No, I'm looking at the world, John, and sometimes I get a sense of big things happening. Yeah. And I feel right now in international economics, international politics, in demography, in the environment, in the division between the various different generations, in inequality. Of course, COVID has exposed all these things, that we are at this tipping point moment. And maybe this is one of these periods that is going to be revolutionary. And sometimes when you're living through it, so it's very easy to look back Mm. and say, oh, 1848, wasn't that a revolutionary year? Mm -mm -mm. Or 1916, or 1798, or if you're American, 1776, or if you're French, well, the French Revolution was kind of a melange of, of, of three or four years, you know, but you don't realize it at the time. Yeah. And as I was meandering on my little walk from Liscanner to Le Hinch, I thought maybe we're going through one of these periods. Well, as Confucius says, may you live in interesting times. Meaning may you not. That's what he actually meant. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Confucius was saying, but we, we don't want to be living in interesting times. But we certainly are. Exactly. And this week has been really fascinating. I think this week, if you were to ask me, you know, the end of July. Remember last year we did a podcast on how August is the month of surprises. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. Right. First World War starts. Beginning of August, the mobilization is in late July. Yeah. Second World War starts, mobilization is late August. August is a period of a month of revolutions. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I'm looking around the world now, John. I'm looking at COVID. I'm looking at inequality. I'm looking at the potential new Cold War between China and the United States, which is flaring up in Hong Kong. I'm looking at the fact that so-called big countries mm. like Britain, America, Brazil can't control a disease. I'm looking at all these issues. I'm looking at the Arab countries. I read an amazing thing during the week, which is basically that Arab countries are yeah. going bust because the oil price is too low. And we're going to have a massive, massive economic crisis in the Arab countries, not just the oil producers, but so many citizens of Egypt, Jordan, Palestine, all work in the oil-producing countries. Yeah. That what you're finding is there's so much going on. You know the way I always like to look at the world as this sort of living organism, this yeah. complex organism that yeah. everything's interdependent. I don't think we have ever seen a crisis moment in our lives like we're seeing right now. And because all these crises are happening in separate ways and they're bubbling up under the surface, we're not really attaching a word to it or a moment to it. But they are but they, all linked. Though, they're the all way. linked. Mm. And what seems to be the case... So when I look at what happened this week, right, the European Union, there's four big things on the economic horizon that I've, I have never seen in my life. One is the extraordinary expansion of government borrowing, now, which I believe is the right thing to do. Yeah. But just look at the figures. What I want to do is... It's this idea, you know, this this frog boiling idea that when you're actually the yeah. frog, you don't yeah, see yeah, what's yeah. going on. But yeah. just think about it, right? Rich countries are going to borrow 17% of our combined GDP in one year. That's a figure of more than $4 trillion in spending and tax cuts. That's coming, right? Sorry, this is who? This is America, America Britain, Europe. America, Europe, and, the, and, and Japan, right? Holy okay? God, okay. Right? The European Union has just agreed a huge stimulus, mm. $750 billion. It's 6% of European GDP, right? And it's totally changed the world because what it's done, it's allowed the European Commission, it hasn't been really reported in Ireland, it's been reported as, oh, how much money will we get? Yeah, what's in it for me? Fuck that, right? Let's look at the totality. What has actually happened is the European Commission not for the first time, but for the first time in a major way, is going to be borrowing abroad on the market as an entity called the European Commission. That's never happened before. Oh, really? Okay. And that's, of course, what the Frugal wow. Four and the Latin belt were worried about because the Frugal Four know the European Commission is borrowing at interest rates that are in some way determined by their frugality, i.e. lower interest rates. Remind me who the Frugal Four are. The frugal four in this regard are Austria, Finland, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Right. And the Swedes are kind of sniffing around there mm. as well. And then, of course, the Latins are the Spaniards and the Italians in the main. But what has happened is Mrs. Merkel with Macron has changed the way the European Union works. It's a huge deal. And I'm not sure we really appreciate that. Okay. Now, the Americans would describe this as a Hamiltonian moment. What's Did you mean? Okay, do you know there's been a big Broadway show? Hamilton, yeah. The Broadway show is about a dude right. called Hamilton. Yeah. 
Now, when the Americans describe it as a Hamiltonian moment, what Hamilton did, right? You have all this thing at George Washington, right? George Washington was great, but George Washington was a great political leader and a brutal economist, right? Oh, was he? Terrible financier, really chaotic, but an amazing politician. Right. Hamilton wasn't a great politician, but was a great financier and tactician. Mm. And by 1892, the American Republic, such as it was, was completely bankrupt. Why? Because they had fought a war based on no taxes. Think about the American. The Americans fought a war of independence saying, we're not paying taxes to those Brits. Then they won the war and they thought, oh shit, we've got to raise taxes. Because <laughs> we've got to have a country. Yeah, yeah you've got to pay for we've stuff. We've got to pay for something. It's like, oh man, but we just fought the war based on no taxes. How <laughs> we can we go back to the same people and say, shit, we're going to raise taxes, right? But that was, this, was, this was the conflict at the heart of the American Republic. Yeah. Hamilton in 1792 was the man who said, A, we've got to raise taxes, and B, we've got to raise federal taxes. Right. So we're going to create a federal budget, and that's going to anchor and gel together the entire American project. And this is at a time when there wasn't a true America as we know it today. There wasn't a true America. It was was basically called the Continental Congress. Yeah. Which is what? Okay. So the Hamiltonian moment is when America moves from a loose federation of rebellious states driven by patriots being anti-English as the only thing that gelled them together to a federal state glued together by a tax system. Right, yeah. Now, many people are saying, is this Europe's Hamiltonian moment where states become diminished and the federal budget increases and we're on our way to a federal Europe? Mm. So that's the first thing that's happening, right? Think about that. Second thing that's happening is central banks, and again, I agree with this, are just printing money as if it's going out of fashion. So governments are borrowing and central banks are printing huge, huge amounts. I'll give you the figure. $3.7 trillion has been printed by central banks this year alone. So basically the central banks are now being taken in as a ward of state of the state. So the state is basically saying to the central banks, so for years and years, this central bank was independent, it wasn't part of the state. Now that's all changed. This has all happened in, in 18 weeks, 16 weeks. It's phenomenal stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Also... Our heads are spinning no, from but, this kind of shite. This is what I'm saying. It's a revolutionary moment. Yeah. The other thing is, so you've got the huge increase in government deficits, huge increase in central bank printing money, which they said they'd never do. And now... The Fed in America are buying the assets, the bonds of American companies. They're buying Apple's bonds, AT&T, Coca-Cola, right? Right. So the American government, through the central bank, is now identifying who it's going to bail out in terms of the corporate sector. This is all revolutionary stuff, and nobody's paying attention to it. And of course... It's all under the umbrella of low inflation. So they're saying, well, we can do everything because inflation is low. So what we've seen, John, in since Patrick's Day is a profound change in the way the world works, a revolutionary change that I've never seen in my lifetime. So so this is disturbing, right? So where does this... Oh, exciting. Well, yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way too. But, but where does it leave us kind of long term? Okay, so think about, we started with, we are on the anniversary today, 28th of July, okay. of the Young Ireland Rebellion, yeah. an internationalist movement. 
against the old regime all over Europe. Where did the 1848 rebellions lead to? They led to massive nationalism, yeah. to socialism, communism, to modernism, to massive change in psychology. I'm talking about to huge innovations. Like, I mean, the world, I would think, between 1870 and 1900 is one of the most fascinating periods of history because it's crazy artistically, culturally. It's revolutionary. This is the, the peak of the Industrial Revolution. All where, that, the Industrial yeah, Revolution. So, so, so people's lifestyles changed then. There was a huge move to urban areas. All that stuff. And also the safety valve in Europe yeah. was enormous amounts of migration. Yeah. We've yeah. never seen it before. Yeah. Europeans move in their hundreds of millions at the end, maybe in their tens of millions as people, but yeah. in the hundreds of millions a, day, a generation or two afterwards to the new world. Yeah. So you get this extraordinary setting up of a global change, right? I think we're at some similar moments. So you look at all these various different dilemmas, challenges we face. You talk to millennials, they feel pissed off. They don't have houses, they don't have a stake. They're you talk to our kids, well, they are actually, in fairness, they are. You talk to our kids, they're kind of, you know, trying to make their way in a world where their idea of getting a job, of getting anything more than minimum wage is, you know, certainly it's very to- precarious. Well, it's totally different to us, and we thought we had it yeah. hard. I actually feel terribly sorry yeah, well, for, well, for the, the, the new generation. The problem is that feeling sorry doesn't stop the revolution. No. Right? You, you, you talk, you go in Europe, you think the North versus South, all these things are happening. We've got this massive migrant issue still coming from Africa. As I was saying earlier on, the Arab countries are going to go bust if the oil price stays at $40. That country like Algeria needs the oil price at $100 a barrel to balance its books. It's mm. now $40 a barrel. We've got COVID, which is exposing all these problems. And of course, the reaction now has been nationalism. The yeah. political reaction is nationalism. But we need to figure out a different way of dealing with these crises. And if you think about at their root, all these crises are about endemic, short-term thinking. Yeah, It's all about, what about tomorrow? What about today? How am I going to do this? How am I going to fix it? All the political class is dictated to by the election, the next cycle, tomorrow's headlines. It's impossible to put a price on the future. And yet the feeling that the future is evaporating from the younger generation, they don't have a future, Mm. is the impetus that drove the Young Ireland Rebellion. Remember, it was called the Young Ireland. It wasn't old people. It was young people, right? That they felt our future has been robbed by somebody else because the older people are not involved in long-term thinking. They're not figuring out the collective. They're acting as individuals. And as I was driving back from Lynch, uh-huh. On my drive, after I was I did my walk, Your road trip. On my road trip, I was thinking maybe we're at that pivotal moment again. Okay, I, I understand that, but when we're under so much pressure as individuals and as a society, that we're trying to get from day to day. So, how do we change our thinking to long term, like proper long term? 
Like, I mean, how does that yeah, work? Well, you could take up the Marx-Engels Communist Manifesto. That's one way. That's one way. <laughs> but that was that was a reaction to change. And, you know, I mean, okay. I'm no Marxist, yeah, yeah. and you know that, right? But I'm fascinated as to where, where it came from uh, and the pressures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of almost geological pressures forcing society to, to abandon the old regime yeah. and come up with this new idea. Now, do you remember about four or five months ago, told you about meeting Brian Cox, the professor Brian oh, Cox. Yes, I do. You're a big fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Brian Cox. He's brilliant. And yeah. I was asked to go to a amazing round table of individuals. And I was obviously let in on the basis of taking notes or whatever. No, but it was really interesting. <laughs> it was about the future. So I, I walk in, Edge from U2 is there. Very cerebral, very philosophical. Mm incredibly deep thinker about many, many things. And he's sitting beside Brian Eno. Brian Another Eno, big thinker. Big, big yeah. thinker. And what the two of them had put together was a group of individuals to talk about, to explore, to tease out, with no real objective, just a, a chat yeah. from economics, from philosophy, from psychology, from biology, from the medical world, from the scientific world, from cultural, literary, you so know. So why were you there? Uh, I was there uh, just hanging out, giving the drinks. I was just <laughs> saying, hey, like another gin and tonic. Right? And I sat beside a guy, English guy, called Roman Prynasic. which is a Croatian name, I'd right. suspect, right? Okay. So we're chatting away, and it's very clear to me that this is a guy who's thinking a lot deeper about the world than me, clearly. <laughs> right? okay. But he was talking about a, a book he was finishing, and he was trying to tease out this idea about thinking the long-term vis-a-vis the short-term, exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. The need to stand back, to take altitude, sure. to figure out how we, in some way, escape day-to-day and go to long-term. And his book, this was published this week, it's really brilliant. It's called The Good Ancestor. Right. And you know what? Let's talk to him. He's on the line. Oh, brilliant. Roman, how are you? I am alive and well. Thanks very much for having me on the programme, David. It's great to have you. What, what, what John was asking me is, how do you become a public philosopher? This is what we want to know. <laughs> it's very easy. You just make up your own title. Um, <laughs> I'm not connected to any university or any institution. I'm just a freelance human being. And I used to call myself a cultural thinker, but no one understood what that was. And then I was in the Netherlands and they've got this idea of a public philosopher. So someone who you know, talks about public affairs um, and they're not just like an academic philosopher looking inside their own navel, but they're interested in the art of living for individuals, but for society as a whole. And that's where I try and situate all of my books, my ideas, my work. How can we live well, but also change society and, you know, expand human well-being? Well, I mean, this 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 book, I, I, I picked it up last week and I've just as we'd say in Dublin, I've hoard through it, okay, which is the technical definition, okay? And it's fantastic. What I want to talk to you is about, just give me the title. It comes, it's an expression by Jonas Salk, isn't it? That's right. So Jonas Salk was the guy who, with his team, developed the first polio vaccine back in 1955. He famously, when he was asked whether he was going to patent it, he said, could you patent the sun? Of course, he didn't patent it. <laughs> and... Um, he later in life, he became a kind of a bio philosopher in his own terms. And he said that the great question 
facing our age is this, are we being good ancestors? And he believed that if we were gonna be good ancestors and be remembered well by future generations, we were gonna to have to massively expand our time horizons to deal with all of the threats on the horizon, whether it's the nuclear threat or the threat of our destruction of the natural world. Um, he thought we, instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes and hours, we needed to widen our temporal horizon to decades and centuries and millennia. And that's what this book is about. It's about how do we get thinking beyond the ego boundary of our own lifetime, thinking at least a hundred years in the future, even further than that, which might sound crazy. I've got to speak to some British members of parliament next week about long-term thinking, and I wonder if they'll just kick me out the door, but hopefully they might stop and listen for a moment and get over their short-term myopia. Well, it's an interesting one. We'll come back to that idea, the way in which, you know, for, through no fault of their own, uh, politicians are needing the oxygen of today and the votes and the cycle and whatever. But let's go a little bit broad before we come to the, the technical issues and the, of problems of trying to think that a little bit longer. I, I'm intrigued by you, you, you call something the, the tyranny of now. Explain that to me. Yeah, I believe that we are in a chronic era of short-term thinking, which is one where the now has taken hold of our lives and shrunk the future right up into the present. So we know that there are those politicians who can't see past the next election or even the latest tweet. We know that markets spike, then crash in speculative bubbles and companies can't see past the next quarterly report or the share price. We know that nations sit around international conference tables bickering away about their near-term interests while the planet burns and species disappear. And of course, as individuals, right, we're always swiping on our phones. We're pressing that buy now button. That's what I mean by the tyranny of the now and the kind of I guess the paradox of it all is that we need more long-term thinking right now, right in the present, more than ever, because of those threats on the horizon, the climate crisis, technological threats like from AI, lethal autonomous weapons, genetically engineered pandemics, and inequalities which have passed on generation upon generation. And when, when, you, when you were thinking about the book, okay, when you were sitting down contemplating, what, was the, what were the few triggers that you thought, okay, I've got to dispense with stuff I was doing before? Because I want to talk about what you were doing before, which I think this, this, this idea of a, an institute of empathy is, is really fascinating. I think our listeners will find it really, you know, actually very touching. And I mean touching in the sense that it'll actually touch us as opposed to the thing you think about. It's something you feel about, the notion of empathy. But uh, what was going on in your head when you started writing this book? Well, I wrote the book really for two main reasons. One, out of a sense of incredible frustration that every time I picked up a newspaper, I was reading reports, oh, there's too much short-termism everywhere in politics and economics and culture. But nobody, and everyone is saying, well, what we need is more long-term thinking, whether it's Al Gore or Jared Diamond or whoever. And I sort of think, well, what the hell is long-term thinking? How long is long? What different kinds of long-term thinking there are? So in a way, I wanted to deal with what I saw as a conceptual emergency. Clearly, thinking longer was a good idea, but you needed to really pull it apart to understand how to do it. And the other origin of this book for me was really to do with a kind of inadequacy in many of my previous books. And many of them are about the theme of empathy. How do we step into the shoes of other people, look at the world through their eyes to overcome social divides of class, of race, gender, whatever. But my bias, I guess, had been how do we step into the shoes of people in today's world, whether people in the on the margins in our own uh, countries, in high-income countries, or those living in 
low-income countries. But what I had never seen, or what I'd never really thought about was, well, what about empathy with future generations? How do we step into their shoes, people we can't meet, that we can't look in the eye? That, for me, was the great challenge. And I guess the funny thing was, in a way, you know, I used to be a political scientist for my sins many years ago, and I was apparently an expert on democratic governments. And it never once occurred to me in those 10 years that we disenfranchise future generations in the same way that slaves and women have been systematically disenfranchised in the past. They're given no rights to the ballot box, no power in the marketplace. So I was trying to, in a way in this book, remedy that situation, that empathic deficit through time. Well, I'm going to get onto this expression you came up with in the book, which I thought was lovely, is the colonization of the future, because it's very, very topical now. Uh, if you have lived in a country that felt itself colonized and was colonized, you know that sense of kind of collective abuse that happens. You know, it's, it's, it's like an abuse of the, of the people. But this idea you can colonize the future, like you're abusing the future, and the future has no voice, and consequently, there's no pushback. I want to come on to that in a sec, but... The idea of humans thinking about the here and now as opposed to the future. There was a lovely chapter in the book called The Marshmallow Versus the Acorn Brain. Can you explain the, the neurological urge we have or default position we have or evolutionary uh, position we have that we want now as opposed to tomorrow? Sure. Well, in a way, that distinction between the marshmallow and the acorn brain comes out of that idea of colonizing the future, that place where we dump out ecological degradation and technological risk and nuclear waste. Because the question was, how do we send our minds into that future? How do we connect with it? And the great thing about human beings is that we are not just the short-term creatures that we are often told that we are. We often assume that we're just driven by instant gratification, by immediate rewards. We are always pressing the buy now button. I call that part of our brains which drives that, the marshmallow brain, named after the famous 1960s psychology experiment, the marshmallow test, where a marshmallow was put in front of kids, and if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. But, of course, you know, the, those kids, most kids did snatch the marshmallow, but it isn't the whole story of who we are, because we also have this other part of our brain a much newer part, the marshmallow brain is about 80 million years old. We share it with rats and other, other mammals. But the acorn brain, which is the, is the bit that focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing, just 2 million years old. It lives at the front of our heads, above our eyes, in, a, in the frontal lobe, particularly in a part, if you want to know, called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. <laughs> and the funny thing is, we are actually pretty good at long-term thinking. I mean, if you think about it, other animals do plan and think forward in time. So a chimpanzee might get a stick from a tree, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a, into a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. But lo and behold, that is exactly what human beings do, right? You know, we will save for our children's education. We will write songs for our own funerals. It's that acorn brain in action. That's how we built the Great Wall of China. We built the Sioux of the 19th century. That's how we voyaged into space. So we need to learn that we, it's a, in a way, it's a new story about human nature. We're not just short-term marshmallow snatchers, we're long-term acorn thinkers. In the same way that in economics has been a revolution of a shift from the me to the, to the we, to recognize we're not just rational individualistic creatures, but we are collective empathic. We're also short and long. 
And Roman, tell us now, I mean, because uh, that, that idea, because, you know, it, it, is, it is this image that you have, like, and you, you, you call it uh, building cathedrals, which I thought was like, if you look, if you, if you know, so for example, if you go around any part of Western Europe, uh, including Dublin and also outside of Dublin, but you see these massive, massive churches built by people who would never see those churches when they were built, you know, like Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin maybe took 150 years to build. All the big minsters, as you call them in the UK, maybe took 200 years to build. Notre Dame, I mean, I presume took 300 years to build or Cologne Cathedral. So Also like, you know, even further back, like pyramids and, and yeah. uh, ancient Greek and Roman stuff. So we're building stuff. So, so we have this ability to think long-term, to plan, to leave a legacy, to leave an imprint, where do you think the conflict is, Roman? Where do you think the conflict is and how, given what we know about the world now, given what we know about you know, the atrophying of international relations, the fact that the economies aren't working, the fact that inequality is going through the roof, you've got climate change, you've got these kind of proto-nationalist leaders emerging who are all about the here and now. Where, where do you think, how do you think the long term can win over the short term, can change our perspective? Well, you're absolutely right that human beings have a great history as cathedral thinkers going back 5,000 years to the pyramids, to all those medieval cathedrals that you mentioned. And also in other areas too, think about social movements like the suffragettes in the UK who founded their first organization in Manchester in 1867, didn't achieve their aims for at least half a century. The struggles today for indigenous rights, women's rights going on for a century. So we're constantly engaged in these long-term struggles that we think we're you know, we realize it may not be one in our own lifetimes, but you're absolutely right that alongside this really quite inspiring history of acorn brain thinking, um, there are all these forces which are pushing against it, which are channeling our sense of now into seconds and milliseconds. But that process by which we become short-termers, our cultural institutions and political economic institutions have been short-termers, has been going on for a hell of a long time. It's not just because you've got a phone in your pocket that we are thinking short-term. This goes back to the medieval period, to the invention of the first mechanical clocks in the 14th century in Europe, when we started speeding up time and measuring it. Um, you know, by the first clocks were only chiming every hour or every quarter hour. By 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. The, the great um, uh, historian of the Industrial Revolution, Lewis Mumford, once said that it was the clock was the great instrument of the industrialization of the Western world. The factory clock sped up time, and we have inherited that today, and now we find it in you know, algorithmic um, short-term share trades, which are going on faster than a blink of an eye you know, in, in milliseconds. And um, we're having to live with that. And that's where the struggle lies. So Roman, I was just thinking, when you're talking about the suffragettes and the here and now, I was thinking it's kind of Kim Kardashian versus Countess Markovich is really what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, this is this came to me, Countess Markovich was a, an Irish revolutionary who was very much into the whole, the, the socialist republic that we would, or we should have in this country back in 1917. Uh, and she was looking at a, again, a 100 year project. Whereas Kim Kardashian, well, she could be first lady. She could, could be. be first lady. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Got to entertain it. Got to yeah. entertain it. Okay, let's fun. talk about getting to long-term thinking. How do we change our focus? The book has a number of lists. You've got drivers of short, 
termism versus six ways of thinking about long term. You've got this lovely image in the book of the amount of people who've been alive, the amount of people who are living, the amount of people who are yet to come. How do we begin to think about the future in practical terms? It's not an easy thing. I mean, Groucho Marx famously said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's something that we all struggle with. I think when it comes down to it, I think this is about thinking about our legacies, the legacies we want to leave. I mean, we've got 7.7 billion people alive in the world today, roughly. If you cast your mind back 50,000 years, that's getting pretty long-term, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But if you go forward 50,000 years, if this century's birth rates level off and remain constant, and that nearly 7 trillion people will be born, they far outnumber everyone alive today. And I think of that huge number of people being full of, I call them the future holders, not shareholders or stakeholders. These are the future holders, the universal strangers of the future, people we will never know, we will never meet. But they are the ones who are looking back on us today, wondering, well, what did these people in the early 21st century do when they knew so much about ecological degradation or technological risk? I like to feel them kind of looking over my shoulder. And I think whether you are rich or poor or black or white or whatever, most people care about the legacies that they leave. They care about, some people focus on an egoistical form of legacy, like a Russian oligarch who wants a wing of an art gallery or a football stadium named after them. Some people, most of us, like me with my 11-year-old twins, think a lot about their familial legacy, wanting to pass on stuff to our children or grandchildren, whether it's wealth or property or pass on religion or family traditions. But I think if we're really going to be good ancestors, we need a more transcendent sense of legacy to recognize that we need to do something that goes beyond just our ego and just beyond the family to the universal strangers of the future, as I think of them. And, you know, when I look myself in the mirror and think, you know, do I really care about the long term? You know, don't I just want to go and go around the corner and get a kebab because I'm hungry, which is something I just did before I came on this um, conversation with you. Actually, when I'm looking in the mirror, I sometimes imagine my 11-year-old daughter as a 90-year-old. And I imagine her at her birthday party, surrounded by family and friends. And I look into her face. I walk over to the window and I look at the world outside that window. And I think to myself, well, what am I going to do for her and her world? Because if I care about her life, in a way, I've got to care about all life all her family and friends that support her. I have to care about the air that she breathes, the food that she eats. And I think that's a way of connecting to something bigger, even if we've got that buy now button looking us in the eye. And you can imagine her granddaughter who could be at that party. Absolutely. And that granddaughter, right, that granddaughter or great granddaughter could live right into the 22nd century. So So it's not that far away. It's not that far away at all. No, it's just, it's just a couple of steps away from my life. I mean, I love reading sci-fi novels set in the 22nd or 23rd century, but that great-granddaughter or great-great-granddaughter's life isn't science fiction. For me, I realize it's an intimate family fact. And I think most of us, if we sit down and think about it, we do have those kind of connections to people who are going to be here long after we're gone. And how do we want to be judged? There was one thing in the book I found fascinating, which was you said that in Japan at the moment, because this is like the practical ways in which we think about the future we could think, that certain county councils, as we call them in Ireland, are putting together little sort of governments, which was they have people representing today, 
let's say, 50% of the people in the room represent today, and then they've got 50% of people who represent the future. And they come to decisions based on an amalgamation of the people who represent today and the people who represent, represent the future. So let's say in a, in, a, in a city like Dublin, you'd have a sort of a council, like a citizens' assembly, which we had, which worked actually quite effectively here in Ireland for the abortion referendum, for the gay marriage referendum, to try and figure out where actually society is feeling rather than have politicians and our technocrats to actually decide where society was. But tell me about what they do in Japan. I found that this really interesting. Yeah, this is a movement in Japan called Future Design. And just remember, of course, Japan has a long history of long-term thinking, partly because they've got, you know, Japan has more businesses than anywhere in the world that have lasted for over a thousand years, like shrine builders and robe makers and stuff like that. They're pretty good at long-term thinking and long-term vision. And this future design methodology for making decisions in towns and cities and local authorities is exactly as you say. They invite citizens along, like in that citizen assembly model, random citizens, and they're split into the two groups. One group's other are the citizens from the present, and the second group are given these like ceremonial green kimonos to wear, like robes to wear, and told to imagine themselves as citizens from the year 2060. And it turns out that the citizens from 2060 come up with much more radical plans for their towns and cities, whether it's environmental policy or transport, education, healthcare. And in fact, the guy who um, invented this methodology, which is now spreading across municipalities in Japan, is uh, an economist who's really interested in game theory. So he's done lots of experimental studies and, and written some really great research papers showing, for example, that you know, if you ask the residents from the present whether they'd want to increase their water rates, um, to do long-term investment in the infrastructure of the, of the pipes in the city, which are all leaking. They'll say, no, we don't want to pay more for our water rates. But the residents from 2060 are perfectly happy to do so because they want their kids and their grandkids to have decent water. And that has spurred many towns to pop up their water rates and people can deal with it, particularly when they've had this citizen assembly kind of process because it, it gives it a legitimacy. It's not just top down like a politician telling you what to do. It's coming from everyday people. And there is systematic evidence to show that these citizen assemblies, these deliberative bodies, tend to have a much more long-term output uh, outlook than politicians who are looking at the next headline, who are looking at the next tweet. Yeah, who are kind of captured, in fairness to them. I mean, I've always thought that most politicians are probably decent enough people trying to do a decent enough job. They just get captured in this, this sort of cage that is opinion polls, the next tweet, the next election, etc. And then they become totally bamboozled by the present when they went into politics thinking about the future in the main. I mean, we've got a couple of, you know, obvious corrupt individuals, etc. But that, that's not the general thing. Roman, I just wanted to ask you, in that kind of setup, it is a bit of a luxury for many societies to allow themselves to think so far in the future because they kind of need to get through the here and now Apart from the COVID crisis, you know, your average day-to-day -day kind of troubles that we all yep. have. Is it a bit well, of a luxury? I think you're right, and I think you're wrong. I think okay. you're right in the sense that, of course, think of the world's 220 million refugees and migrants. They're just trying to get on with dealing with life now, put food on the table like my dad when he was a, a, an immigrant from a refugee going from Poland to Australia after the Second World War. He was just trying to find somewhere to sleep, yeah. you know, and dealing with everyday racism. And on that level, one might think, oh, okay, long-term thinking is a, is a luxury item for those who've got kind of security. But here's the curious thing. It seems to me that actually it's often those in the positions of greatest privilege who are much more narrow in their long-term thinking. 
So for example, an aristocrat who just wants to keep their manorial home in down inside the bloodline, whereas those people living on the social margins have been the ones on the streets fighting for intergenerational justice. Think for example of Native American peoples like the Iroquois or the Lakota Nation people um, who do this idea thing called seventh generation thinking. It's a kind of ecological stewardship decision-making based on the impact seven generations from now. They're hardly a privileged group in society. Or in Maori culture in New Zealand, there's the idea of papa, which is the idea of genealogy or lineage, the idea that you're connected to the past and the future in a continuous lifeline. Or think of Black Lives Matters. There's a great book by Leila Saad, I'm a black activist called Me and White Supremacy. On the first page, she talks about being a good ancestor. Why? Because she knows that racism and intergenerational oppression is deeply embedded in criminal justice systems and culture and has been for decades, for centuries in policing systems, in judicial systems. And the struggle against that is a long-term struggle to liberate future generations from that same kind of racism. So it's a curious thing, actually. I think this long-term thinking is in more places than we think. There are more time rebels out there struggling to think long than we immediately imagine. So d- does our current democratic system, generally in, in, in the Western world, we're kind of fighting against this ourselves because most politicians will only look to their term in office, whether it's four years, five years. You know, are we fighting against ourselves in that sense? Well, I think when I think of that kind of comment, which is really interesting, what comes to mind are the number of people come up to me and say, oh, look at all these squabbling democratic politicians. What we need you know, is a good benign dictator, an enlightened despot who can sort it out, who can take the long view like the Chinese on yeah. climate change and invest in renewables, or like Singapore where they do long-term investment in public education and housing. I was really interested in this question. Actually, are benign dictators better at long-term thinking than democratic countries? In this new book, The Good Ancestor, I decided to actually look at the evidence. And I worked with a statistician called Jamie McQuilkin. We created a, well, he really created a unique index called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, which takes 10 indicators of economic indicators, social and environmental, everything from carbon footprint to long-term investment in primary school education, and puts, it's a composite indicator, so it comes out with a single number. And what you see in the end is that actually it's democracies outperform autocracies by miles when it comes to long-term public policy performance. There are outliers like Singapore and China, but by and large, democracies are better at delivering for the long-term than autocracies like Russia or Saudi Arabia. Mm. But the thing is, all the democracies could get a hell of a lot better. Iceland's at the top, um, Switzerland's up there too, but so is Costa Rica and Uruguay. And so they could all push themselves with things like this Japanese model that David was mentioning, which is so important to expand uh, long-term thinking in the democratic process. It really needs a jump start. Uh, Roman, the uh, the unfortunate thing is John has got a weakness for the old uh, dictator, it seems. Uh, <laughs> he's abandoned that. He's abandoned that democracy. Roman, listen, it was fascinating to talk to you. Was, um, I, and again, what I will say is the book is called The Good Ancestor. Google it. Have a look at it. It's really well worth a read. Roman, listen, back to your kebabs and all that carry on. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on. It's been a huge pleasure and privilege. Cheers, Thanks, Roman. Roman. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, you see, there's Roman there going back to a kebab house. With garlic sauce and the whole shebang. Well, if you've there's ever... There's no abracadabras, I'd say. Hey, there's no abracadabras. There's maybe a finer, finer thing. <laughs> if you've ever woken up with a kebab beside you, you'll know. 
Many, many times. You're just sitting there beside you saying, how are you? It's me, your friend from last night. But do you night. know what's interesting about what he was saying, though? Fascinating stuff, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really good stuff, really good stuff. But what he was saying was absolutely spot on. But there is a, a very fine balancing act between living in the here and now, which you have to, and thinking about the future, about our kids, our grandkids, mental health, and all the rest. Yeah, like the expression I found most appealing, not most appealing, but touched me most on this, was the idea of colonizing the future. Yeah, the future a, can't speak. It's a great phrase, that. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the extraordinary thing about colonialism was that colonialism, for example, the UK, was based on a law called terra inhabitus. So they said, like, for example, Australia mm. was uninhabited. And consequently, taking over Australia was legally possible. They omitted to think of the indigenous people. Right, right yeah, yeah. Ireland was probably terra, you know, nullus for them as well. <laughs> and what he's totally saying is that basically the future is this like terra nullus and this inhabitus. We don't have to worry about it. I get what you're saying, that in the moment and living in the moment is something for many, many people. But equally, it's this idea in economics called the paradox of aggregation, which is what is good for the individual is not always good for the community. Sure, yeah. And it's a huge dominating force in economics, right, that sometimes economists don't see or don't pay enough attention to. Mm. So what he's saying is we are a community. We are a collective. We are one world. We are one planet. As Jared Diamond, the great Mm-hmm. evolutionary biologists say, yeah. there's no planet B if we mess this one up. All right, we mess <laughs> this one up. We're moving next door. There is no next door. Yeah. This is it. So when I hear someone like Roman talking and when I hear read what he's writing, it seems to me, John, to encapsulate the essence of being a properly functioning, thinking human. You can't just think about yourself. We've got to think about the collective and not the collective that is now alone, but the collective to come. People we don't even know, whose faces we will never recognize, but whose lives will be determined by the legacy that we leave. How are you doing there? It's David here. Now, if you like the stuff we're doing and if you enjoy the podcast and if it adds to your commute or your week or your chats and this, that and the other, why don't you support us? So there's a new feature on Acast called Acast Supports. And there you can pledge whatever you want. It's a one-time deal. Have a look at it. Acast Supports. And, you know, myself and John, we'd really, we'd appreciate it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.